0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Brian H. Williams, the author of The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. How are you doing today, Dr. Williams? I'm
0: doing fantastic to have me on your show.
1: Can you start by telling us a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project
0: yes uh, first i would say I, I am an air force brat you know child of a career air force veteran he served 23 years uh, so my sister and i my mother we spent our lives moving every three to four years to military bases around the country and around the world i spent some time in japan a hardship tour in hawaii and uh inspired by my father's service i went to the military myself we went to the air force academy was a first generation college graduate and served on uh, after duty, then later went to medical school and eventually became a trauma surgeon. Did you know, some training at Harvard, Emory, and moved to Dallas, Texas. Uh, didn't plan to become an author. Writing a book was not part of my life plan. Uh, but after a mass shooting of Dallas police officers in July of 2016, uh, in the aftermath of that, I really began to evaluate. i've been doing in my career what i could do more to serve my community and from that this book kind of morphed over the course of years and i really wanted to it's a deeply personal memoir with a lot of storytelling where i wanted to pull the reader into this world of being a trauma surgeon uh being a black doctor what that means for healthcare, but also explore bigger issues uh, racial justice gun violence how public policy impacts our lives. And it's kind of pulling along that story to, it's heavy, but meant to be a roadmap towards hope and healing. And I hope it's a call to action for anybody that reads the book to do something differently the day after they finish reading the book.
1: Now, in chapter one, you describe the emergency room when there's a death of a black male. Can you take the audience there?
0: Yeah, so I really wanted to work hard to pull you into what it's like to be a trauma surgeon in the trenches when there's just this epidemic of gun violence and be on call and see five, six, sometimes a dozen gunshot victims come in over the course of a shift. And uh, we have very professional teams that are focused on saving lives, but the humanity of these injured victims uh, can't be sight of that. And I've always told myself, if I no longer cared about these strangers, that I need to change my line of work. And pronouncing so many young people dead on arrival due to gun violence and talking to their parents, um, that you know, that really changed the person, right? I just really want to change that so nobody had to deal with that grief. And I always at the end, when there is a death due to gun violence, have the team stop a moment of silence so i want we, us all to just honor our shared humanity at least for a few seconds uh, recognize that tomorrow is never promised and that all of us has a role that we can do to to make the world a better place today with our time here on earth and uh that's what's kind of propelled me to do more to uh, serve my serve my community
1: now you talk about being in a society being a black doctor in a society that devalues black life Tell us more about that. Yeah, so
0: there are fewer Black men entering medicine now than there was back in the 70s. So you know, over the course of a few decades, our numbers are decreasing. So that, what that means is when I go into a hospital setting, uh, I'm one of the few people that look like me. But many of my patients do, because I've chosen to work at safety net hospitals. So they these are hospitals that care for the indigent, uh, those with the low socioeconomic means, and many this this is a proxy for people that aren't you known black and brown people, and so I feel obligation to be present for them because I feel that anyone, everyone deserves high quality uh, healthcare. Um, but we talk about the exploitation of black people in medicine for medical experimentation I think that goes back generations, right? We talk about Tuskegee, but there's so much more like J. Marion Sims, who did barbaric operations on enslaved women. Uh, we did whole body radiation on Black people in the late 60s to test the effects of uh, nuclear bombs. But again, these were things that were sanctioned by the government, right? We were doing this on Black people. And we did learn a lot for medicine as a result. Um, but we can't ignore that people that could not say no were used against their their will, and that's what I mean when I say that medicine devalues Black people. Um, but there's a lot of good that can come from that too. So that's what I, I want to shine a light on that. As someone who's worked in medicine, has benefited from all that, and seen in humanity, what can we do to honor the humanity and move forward, and make healthcare just for everyone?
1: Now, what should policymakers focus on concerning the Black balance?
0: The Here's a thing, if we look at how policy has intentionally excluded uh, Black people uh, from many segments of society and the results that persist today, if you recognize that, uh, we can understand, we can recognize, look at our history, understand our present to make for a better future. Um, there's examples outside of medicine. As I said, I wanted to use my career in medicine as a jumping off part to bigger things. So let's look at the GI Bill. The GI Bill after World War II uplifted millions, it created a middle class that persists today. It allowed returning veterans to get uh, housing loans and education loans. So people bought a house for the first time and passed it along to their children. So wealth was generated and passed along. People could go to college and get a degree and get higher paying jobs for the first time, uh, transform families, but Deidre, those benefits were denied to about a million black service members who served in world war ii and it's been called one of the greatest racial injustices of our time because they despite having served honorably did not get the benefits of housing loans and education loans and we see that wealth and education gap still persists today right so that's what i mean like policy that was put in place that hurt black people uh, we need to recognize that and put policies in place that will not just remove the barriers, but uplift entire communities that have been suffering. And everyone will benefit from that by doing so.
1: Absolutely. Now, you were in the emergency room on July 7, 2016. Tell us what happened and how that changed your life.
0: July 7th, 2016, uh, there was a mass shooting of Dallas police officers in downtown Dallas. And it's a night that I still think about to this day, Now, for some context. Uh, 2016 was the election season between Clinton and Trump. July 7th was a day after Philando Castile was shot and killed in Minnesota by a police officer. It was two days after Alton Sterling was shot and killed by a police officer in Louisiana. So on July 7th, there were protests scheduled all around the country. But also earlier that year, we had about a month earlier, we had the mass shooting in Orlando at the, Upholst uh, nightclub. There were other shootings throughout the year. So this was kind of a crescendo leading up to this point. But on July 7th, the shooting, the, um, protests in Dallas became violent when a lone sniper army veteran was there targeting police officers shot 14, seven were brought to the hospital where I was working at the Trump and three of those officers died from their wounds. And uh, the, the night nearly broke me. I, I just, losing a patient is hard. Losing three that rapidly uh, is hard, but also the context, of what was happening uh, outside the hospital uh, put this all into a different perspective. And uh, it, was, it was after that night, right, I now walked into the room, after having put on clean scrubs once again, telling the parents about their loss and their, their, their son. Uh, I, I broke down. I just, I broke down I've never done that, and uh, that was a moment where things began to shift in me. i do not know if you've had that moment, Deirdre, where something happens to you, and you realize that you're different afterwards. Uh, you may not be able to describe it, but you're just different, and that's how it was. I was different, and I was kind of on a new path of how I wanted to serve uh, my community.
1: Absolutely. Now, in Chapter 2, you talk about the demons. You didn't have this desire as a child growing up to become a doctor. How did you become a doctor? <laughs> You're, that is correct. That was never part of my
0: life plan. I, when I was young, I didn't see black doctors and they talk about you. You can't see it. You can't be it. It never crossed my mind to go into medicine. Uh, I knew I'd go into the military and I did. And I was an aeronautical engineer. That was my first career. Uh, but a lot of my friends were in medicine. So I was exposed to it that way, listening to their stories about taking care of patients. And I was very intrigued by that. And I later decided to go to medical school. So I was about 27, 28 years old when I went to med school. So most people are graduating school at that time. <laughs> I was studying medical school. Uh, so I made a choice to change my career to become a healer. It was a very conscious choice to make this this leap. And I, I don't, don't even look back. I mean, I've it's been a very rewarding career. Uh, I can't describe the rewards that come from being able to help people uh, in their times of need and the friends I've made along the way. Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
1: Now, in Chapter 3, you talk about the pain of the loss of your grandmother. How was that an example of health inequality? So my, my grandmother, on my, well, my father's side,
0: had uh, asthma. and One day... She had a a bad asthma attack, which was treatable, but she just needed to get to the hospital quickly. But that was at a time where emergency medical services would not enter the black neighborhood where they lived. So essentially she died because they would not send help where the black people lived. And uh, that's an example of how racial disparities in healthcare are result of systemic issues sometimes right And that just straight out racism there right they just that was straight out racism for that but she was she could have survived that that and it's still my father Uh, it happened on his birthday so uh he thinks about that like that's a reminder on his birthday about the death of his mother which was preventable but i use that i talk about what came what came later is how the emergency medical system that we take for granted now with ambulances and paramedics coming to you in times of need, that began in Philadelphia with a group of Black men who were hired to drive these ambulances uh, in Philadelphia, and that grew to become what we now consider our national EMS services. So an example of when when Black people uh, benefit, everybody benefits, right? Just got to talk about the history. Just got to talk about the history.
1: Absolutely. Chapter four, you talk about the long blue line. Tell us about that incident in Hawaii where your mother called you Brian Henry Williams.
0: Yeah. So we were, um, my dad was in the Air Force. He moved around a lot. We spent a a time, some time in Hawaii. And up to that point, I'd been called the N-word several times throughout my my life. Uh, But that one day, uh, I snapped. (laughs) I snapped at this kid and just began to pummel him. It was all out fisticuffs, just unloading, just all into anger uh, that I had on this kid. And, you know, my mom was like, Brian, you're trying to get me to stop. Whenever she says Brian Henry Williams, I know I'm in trouble. Like, that's the full, you know, first name, middle name, last name. I I knew I'd crossed this line. I was out of control, um, but it was a moment that well, she grabbed me and pulled me off the kid. And I, you know, it was the last time I got in a fight. That was the last time I was in a fight, but I've been fighting ever since, right? The, the fight became internal, how to control this anger, but be outwardly non-threatening, how to be successful and progress in my career despite seeing all the injustice i see in my job and around the country uh was called uh you know these battle, internal internal battle of two different beings within me trying to serve and trying to maintain my anger i was trying to simply trying to be honest about that that uh i do have these feelings and uh, i do control them but now i'm at a point in my life where i've channeled that anger into good try to channel that into being of service about it be self-destructive, as it had been in the
1: past. Yes. Now, you talk about your military lineage going all the way back to grandparents. Tell us about that.
0: Yes, I'm very proud of this. My I come from a long line of veterans. My great, 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 my big grandfather actually served in the South Carolina regiment for the Union. He was actually enslaved and then uh, served in, in the Civil War. Uh, others served in World War One, uh, World War II, fought in the Pacific Theater, served in the Pacific Theater in the, in the segregated units. Uh, my dad, again, 23 years in, in the Air Force. So military service is that is the family business. Uh, but looking back, you know, my my great 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 grandfather who served in the Civil War, he was enslaved, fought in the war. Afterwards, uh, received a plot of land. And that land is still in my family today. They're, you know, they've been farming on that land for generations. And I think like, could he even imagined that someday one of his descendants would be, would graduate college or become a doctor or do what I'm now doing which is you're know, running for for office to, to serve in Congress. Like they're just trying to get by day to day and survive. But in a few generations, we've come a long, long, long way. And I think I credit the military for giving us that sort of sense of service um, such a service and camaraderie and, and community, uh, but also recognizing that we have a long way to go to manifest all of the ideals that are professed in the Constitution, right? They served when all those rights were not given to them and did it anyway with honor. Uh, so I will continue that. And there's much more for us to do. Yes.
1: Now, in Chapter Five, you talk about your experience at the Tampa General Hospital. What was the advice that was given to you about AIDS and hepatitis in the hospital?
0: Yeah, so as a student, I was on my trauma rotation, and you know, when the senior trainees, a gunshot victim came in, uh, died from their wounds, a black man, and. You know, i was enthralled by the actual uh, the adrenaline and the rush of trying to save this patient but it was afterwards recognizing how this dead black man was treated as more of a specimen to to teach and the way he talked about this patient using terminology that i would not use to describe individuals but then saying look i want you to feel in here when we tr- you know we tried to save this patient with a thoracotomy some broken bones he said, you know, do not catch yourself on a rib because if you, you know, you need to catch AIDS or hepatitis or some, something else that you don't want to catch. It was all very clinical. It was very true also, um, but I felt it was detached from the reality that before us was a young black man who has a family who will never see him alive again. And uh, that sort of humanity was missing from all that discussion. And uh, I, I don't want to lose that. And I want to make sure my trainees
1: don't forget about that as well. Now, you talk about the body brokers and their promise to provide this barrel cost. Tell us, what did you find out there?
0: Body brokers, it's an industry, modern industry, uh, for gathering uh, you know, non-transplantable body parts for uh, medical science. All right. Um, it's unregulated. <laughs> uh and it's uh, it's become a problem because what they do is they will fr- they will make uh, promises to people that look like, we'll take care of your burial costs you know you sign the body over to us uh, we're going to use some of the, some of the parts for uh, science uh, but what's happening is that they typically prey on people with low say, low economic means so poor people and then these bodies aren't always disposed of in a humane way there have been some horrific stories of uh large the, the mounds of body parts being found behind some of these, uh, these uh, buildings and institutions that are not disposed of, of properly. So it's it's, it's a for-profit business that is uh, highly unregulated and it's a separate from transplants, like separate from getting heart transplants and organ transplants. This is a, that's regulated. This body broker stuff is not, but I go back when I'm talking about this, what's happening now, I go back, you know, you know, another century, when through medical education, to get bodies for students to do dissections and things, they would actually go rob the graves at the black cemeteries, exhume the bodies, take them back to their uh, schools, and dissect these bodies. You know, basically, they were grave robbers. Grave robbers, and these bodies were uh, rarely returned to where they came from. And recently, about, I don't think mid 80s, early 90s, I'll double check the date, but they actually found. Thousands of bones (laughs) beneath one of the medical schools where the bodies have been stolen and disposed of without a proper burial.
1: This episode
0: is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yes. Now, you went from Florida to Boston. Tell us about that Boston experience.
0: Yes, I did medical school in Florida at the University of South Florida. Then I went to, just so people know, when you, you go to undergrad, then you go to medical school, then you do your residency was would you specialize in something. Surgery was what I did. Psychiatry and trouble medicine. And so I went to Boston to do my surgery residency at a place called and Women's Hospital, which is one of Harvard Medical School's main teaching hospitals. And I just, I had a blast. I was, you know, getting to operate, take care of patients. Um, Some of my closest friends now are from my intern class. Uh, But also during there, I had my share of experiences where I'd walk into a room and the patient would see me, I'm their doctor, but tell me to take out their trash, uh, clean their empty tray of food. I've had patients refuse care for me because I was black. So, uh, there, at every stage in the career, despite my training and my desire to heal, I could still be marginalized and dismissed because I'm black. And I will describe that through a book that's happened at every stage in my medical career. However, I feel my presence is still important. I'm here to serve. And particularly in healthcare, we have such significant disparities in race as far as outcomes. We need more doctors of color in their profession. You know, doctors, nurses, therapists, at all levels, administrators, uh, who understand how these lived experiences so that we can provide the best quality of care for everyone.
1: Now, you also... Um, had your wife to return to Boston, and then you got married.
0: Yeah, I met my, I met my wife in Boston um, and got married. We've been together, I've oh, married, maybe 19 years this September. So she's been along the entire journey from residency to fellowship to being attending. <laughs> so uh, she, she has her own story to tell. And also, I mean, the book, you, in the book, she's a central character. She's the voice of reason at key points in the book. Uh and also my, you know, biggest critic, biggest cheerleader of uh, the story without her in it is not as interesting, I don't think. <laughs> um, but also like several key moments. She was the one that helped me go left or right during the story.
1: Yes, and congratulations. Chapter seven, you talk about um the move to Dallas and going on a ski trip. Tell us about your police encounter.
0: Yeah. So I was going on a ski trip as a snowboard. I was a snowboarder, but uh, I was waiting for my ride to the air force standing outside of my apartment complex and somebody saw me standing there and called the police. And the report was that there was a bald black man acting suspiciously. I found this out after the fact, but at the moment I just remember the police coming up to me. I do. I was, I froze. I was, I knew no matter what I did, even if I did everything correctly, that this could end with me being beaten or shot. And I didn't know what was happening, but it's that fear is that initial fear of police approaching me. Uh, that, uh, that was visceral and, uh, unforgettable. Uh, it, you know, it, it ended fine. But afterwards when I learned that I'm standing in front of my own apartment complex and someone calls the cops, like, do they know that that could end in my death? Did it even cross their mind? And, uh, I, mean, I describe that fear but also say look I respect anyone who wears a uniform I I wear the uniform my dad wore the uniform if you're going to wear the uniform and serve I respect I respect that, that job that commitment and that service however you know I I do have a fear of, of police and that's because of my own experience and the stories of my uh, family members we know and I think people recognize that now because it's been such a uh, you know, we had so many videos that have come out and as we talk about it more often, that this is a realistic fear for communities of color, but we still need to be part of the solution. We don't want to walk away from this. At least for me, still be part of the solution. And I actually had a chance to serve as the police review board chair here in Dallas, uh, the mayor appointed me. So I had a chance to work with the police and the community to bridge that gap of uh, trust, which is a very, which to the phenomenal learning experience for me. But to get out there and do that
1: absolutely now let's go back to the incident with the police officers how did you approach the families i thought that was so touching when you describe how you approached the family members well, just,
0: before i even go talk to a family after uh, death i try to make sure i don't have any blood on me uh, i was soaked in blood so i had to change my scrubs and wipe off my shoes and put on my white coat and we have a family room where we have these discussions. They were already sitting when I came in. And what I do is I just, I, I walk them through what happens. I tell them, I introduce myself, uh, tell them to, I'm going to tell them what happened. They can stop me at any time, ask any questions. Um, but you know, families want to know if their loved one is alive or not. Right. When you tell them that they're dead. Uh, you get all sorts of different reactions, you know, from different people. Some are very emotional, some say nothing, uh, but in this moment, uh, talking to the police officers, uh, mother, and th- our father and stepmother, uh, before he even finished the thing, the, the father said, that's okay, Dr. Williams. I know my son is dead. I know you did everything you could. I thank you very much. I thank the whole team. And for me, that was very touching because he was comforting me during my time of grief, i putting on a good face to try to comfort him. And we've been close uh, ever since then. We frequently see each other and talk and text. Um, so that that tragedy has bonded us in a way uh, that's really hard to explain.
1: Now, four days after the shooting, they needed somebody from the hospital to talk with the media. And that's where the society knew and found out about Dr. Brian Williams. Tell us about that day of getting in front of the camera.
0: Yeah, that, that press conference changed everything, Deidre. Before that, I lived a comfortable life with anonymity. I've been asked to give interviews before, and I've always declined, but that day changed things. Uh, they asked me to come to this press conference they were going to have to talk about the shooting, and I initially declined. Uh, I didn't want to be part of it. Uh, I was still reliving that night. It was a very traumatic night for me. I, I felt... Um, you know, I, I, I avoided the media. I wasn't turning on the TV, the news. I was in my own little bubble, going to work, going to going home. And when I was asked, I said no. And I told my wife, I'm, they're going to have a press conference. You may want to watch this press conference soon, but I'm not going to be there. And she got back to me right away and said, you have to go to that press conference. You don't have a choice. Get over yourself. This is bigger than you. And her point was, you know, you got a, a black Cypher who was shooting police officers, the whole out there, it's black lives matter, Blue lives matter, all lives matter. She said, they're saying that black men are evil. They deserve to die. She said, people need to see that that night that they knew a the black doctor were there trying to save these cops, especially since I was the only black doctor, black trauma surgeon in the group. And it was initially my night off. I was supposed to be off that night, but I changed shifts at the last minute with one of my partners. So I should just go there so they can see, so they can know that, that you were there. So I did. I showed up, had no plans to speak, but then I did speak because what was being said, or actually what was not being said at the press conference didn't sit well with me because we weren't talking about racism. We weren't talking about policing. We weren't talking about gun violence. And I said, we have to talk about this or nothing will change. So in the moment I spoke, it was heartfelt, unplanned. And from that point on, that moment went viral,
1: and my life changed. Absolutely. Now, to the audience, you have a daughter, and you took her to the the Martin Luther King class project in kindergarten, and she had a question. I thought this was telling us about young people today.
0: Yeah, so at the time, of, my daughter may have been five or six, in either kindergarten or first grade. Uh, daughter's multiracial. And they were talking about Martin Luther King. And she asked me this really pointed question. She said, if I was living back during that time, would I have to go with the white people or the black people? So she was asking questions about her racial identity, and what that meant. And it just kind of floored me because it was, it was a deep question. Um, and it was, it was also sad that she felt like she had to make a choice, right? There's something implicit in our society that says you have to make a choice about that. And my response was like, look, you don't have to choose. Like, You don't go with anybody. You have them follow you because God put all the best parts of everybody (laughs) and put them into you, so they will follow you. And, um, but, you know, since then, you know, she's 13 now. She's a teenager growing into her own. But I just want her to know that like you, you get to be who you are. You come as you are. You don't have to change yourself for anybody.
1: Now you tell us about some of the terms that you avoid. (laughs) Tell us about those terms that you just don't use. Undeserved.
0: Yeah. So yeah, I, I try to avoid using terms that describe communities uh that 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 deny their humanity. We talk about marginalized communities, underserved communities. Uh, I I I, 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 now, I now try I use the term like communities of opportunity, right? We need to see not what's missing, what's absent but what is possible. And also how we work with the members of the community because people that are closest to the problem often have the best solutions. So I, I try to inject, when I'm talking about this and solutions, because the book is supposed to be hopeful. It's a path towards healing. You use terms that are hopeful and that and, 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 right, are positive and collaborative. So communities of opportunity, I feel, and it's not my term, Some, I heard this from someone that said, I like that. That's a great way to describe this. And I've been using that more and more when I talk about how we can transform communities that have endemic violence, communities that have high rates of uh, healthcare uh, disparities, low educational opportunities, housing, uh, lack of housing. What can we do to uplift entire communities so that everyone can thrive? That is what I've committed to you allocate three communities where all can thrive
1: now in chapter 18 you talk about the economical tools of gun violence tell us what are the suggestions you have here well i believe that
0: we all have the right to live free of the fear of gun violence and we can save lives and respect our second amendment rights at the same time these are not mutually exclusive they can go uh, together and the perspective i bring is as a trauma surgeon who has seen Uh, Too much needless death and suffering due to gun violence. Seen too many families torn apart by gun violence. Uh, As a veteran, I've trained on weapons. And as a family member, a survivor, I've had members of my family taken from me due to gun violence. So it's personal and professional. Uh, But as an academic, I've studied solutions. I I wrote this book and I served in Washington as a health policy advisor uh, for Senator Chris Murphy when we passed it. Gun safety bill uh, two years ago, the most significant gun safety bill in the generation after the shooting in Uvalde. So it's possible to use policy to save lives and still respect our Second Amendment rights. So that's what I'm talking about. And bringing the perspective of everyone to the table, not just the mass shooting victims. To be clear, any one loss of life due to gun violence that we can prevent is too many. But my everyday life as a trauma surgeon, was this the... Uh, violence that comes from handguns that are happening every day. What can we do to reduce that sort of gun violence? Intimate partner violence, unintentional shootings. (laughs) There's so much we can do with the right leaders in place.
1: Yes. Now, after a person reads your book, what message would you like them to leave with? The book is a call to action, and I
0: want them to leave with this, that if we're going to reduce needless death due to gun violence. We have to, uh, address how race and racism impacts our outcomes, our view of who are worthy victims and how our policies are put in place, uh, around guns, because we all deserve to live free of gun violence. And we have to uplift all the voices, uh, in, in the efforts to create communities where our kids and we uh, can thrive call to action. My call to action on running for Congress. What your call to action will be? uh, I don't know, but I hope it's something different than the day before you read the book.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you will be working on?
0: Oh, right now I'm in the midst of a congressional
1: campaign,
0: uh, running for U.S. Congress in District 32 in Dallas, Texas. That's an open seat. If elected, I'd be the first trauma surgeon in Congress. And I'll also be the first black doctor with voting celebrities in Congress. Uh, you can learn more about that at Doctor drbrianwilliamsforcongress.com. Uh, we're primaries a few weeks away. And as far as my other writing projects, I have a book idea. I've been going back and forth with, uh, with my agent. Uh, i trying to flesh that out. And uh, you can keep following that at my other website, uh, brianwilliamsmd.com. But that's what what I have going on. Another book in the works and hopefully be a member of Congress next year.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll be looking forward to seeing you there and all of your next books. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.